0: As we look to his word today, I believe he wants to speak to us. Acts chapter 4, verse 36, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, of a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, And brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door And they will carry you out as well. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you today, Lord, that as we look at the early church, as we look at the beginning of your church, Lord God, you desire to speak to your church today. And so, Holy Spirit, we just thank you for this moment. We thank you for your presence in this place. Lord, we open our hearts to to receive from you. Lord, I pray against any distraction that might come in just this short time, that we would hear clearly from you what you would have us to do, and that as your people, as your church, we would respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. You may be seated today. Praise God. Praise God. It is, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. We are continuing as a church in a series through the book of Acts. Maybe get a little more uh, light in the house. Thank you, brother. Um, hopefully you got a note sheet when you came in the door this morning. I want to encourage you to pull that out and be uh, ready uh, to follow along with us. We are here in the beginning of Acts chapter 5. I know we've been in Acts for a while. I told you it's probably going to be the fall before we <laughs> finish maybe uh, Christmas. I don't know. Um, but how many of you are enjoying this journey through the book of Acts? Praise God. God's speaking through it, right? And, and so today we're going to look at Acts chapter 5, and I've got to be honest, it, it's a passage that can seem very confusing as you first read it. Um, you read this passage, and, and, you, and you might say, hold on, wait a minute, am I in the New Testament here, right? Like, isn't this the age of grace? Because this sounds like a very harsh passage, and can I just say it is? You can read this passage, and you might ask, the first question that would come to mind is why would a a God of love put anyone to death like this, right, why would he put anyone to death for lying? I mean, if God went through his church and took out anyone in this place that lied in the last year, there there probably wouldn't be many of us left, right? And and so as we study uh, the New Testament church, we need to ask, why did this happen and what does it mean for us today? To understand the story, you have to understand the setting that this event takes place in. In, in, chapter, in the prior chapter, verse 32, Pastor Floyd shared from this passage last week, we're told this about the early church, that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then we hear of this man uh, named Joseph. He's also known as Barnabas, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means, if you're following in the notes, son of encouragement. That's a good name, right? They they realize there's something special about this man, Joseph. We're we're gonna hear a lot more about Barnabas in the future. Um, He's this incredible bridge builder. He's someone who loves people and desires to bring them together. One of the early church fathers wrote that Barnabas was likely one of the 72 disciples that Jesus sent out in Luke chapter 10. But the first thing we learn about Barnas in the book of Acts is that he makes this exceptional sacrifice. He sells some property and he takes all of the proceeds of that property and he gives the money to the church for the poor. Remember the early church was made up of many who had traveled to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost and then on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls in that place, they receive the Lord but they need to stay to hear the apostles' teaching. They weren't prepared financially to stay, they weren't planning to stay in Jerusalem, but here they are, and so they're in need, right? In need financially. It's likely at this point that individuals have maybe lost even their jobs for their faith in Jesus Christ, maybe been disowned by their families, and so the church is in need, and Barnabas says, you know what, I have a way to meet that need, and he makes this huge sacrifice. Now I'm sure that word got around. Hey, did you hear what Barnabas did? (laughs) I mean, what an example this guy is. Everyone was talking about Barnabas, and and a couple named Ananias and Sapphira decide, you know what, we want that same recognition. They want to be viewed as spiritual leaders in the church. They want the same privilege, but they're not willing to make the same sacrifice. And so they too sold a piece of land and gave to the church. I want you to see something interesting in this passage. They both did the same thing. They both sold property, and they both gave the proceeds from it to the church. The only real difference was their motivation. Why did they do what they did? You see, I I believe Barnabas was motivated out of a love for others. The people of the church are in need. I love them, and so I'm going to give generously. I'm going to give sacrificially to meet that need. But Ananias and Sapphira are motivated by a love for self. They're motivated by a desire for public recognition. They were motivated by pride. It's kind of paradoxical, isn't it, that people who struggle with pride the most often have the lowest self-esteem, right? Have you ever heard someone and they just begin to speak about all the things that they've done, they want to promote themselves, they'll tell you all their credentials, all the important people i met, right? All these things, all their accomplishments. But a funny thing happens as they continue to talk. Every time that person cites another accomplishment or drops another name, in your mind, their status actually drops, doesn't it? It actually has the opposite effect. And Jesus tells us a parable in Luke 14. He's it tells this parable of sitting at a dinner party. He's at the dinner party, but he says the, at the dinner party, he's watching people and they're, they're jockeying for the best seats. And he says this, hey, when you go to a dinner party, don't look for the best seat in the house. Don't, don't try to sit next to the host. Don't look for the best seat in the house because the host may come up to you and say, hey, you can't sit here. <laughs> you gotta move down to a lower spot. Instead, he says, choose a low spot and let the host bring you up. Can I just say that's the way that it works in the kingdom of God? You don't have to promote yourself, okay? God will give you all of the recognition that you need and all the recognition that you deserve. And and the problem with Ananias and Sapphira is they are desperate for self-recognition. And they think that that the way to get ahead is to promote themselves. Can I just say this? True greatness does not come from self-promotion. True greatness in the kingdom of God comes from acts of sacrifice for others. It comes from lifting others up. It comes from uh, giving them self-worth, right? Making others look good. Barnabas was, was obviously a great man, but apparently Ananias and Sapphira were some cheap imitations, and, and God saw right through them. You see, I want to tell you this morning, hopefully you know this, you can't lie to God. The passage shows us that Two people can perform the same act, but in the eyes of God, it can be far from being the same. You see, to those who saw Ananias bring this money and laid it at the apostles' feet, his, his actions must have seemed pious. He, he must have seemed like a, a generous man. And even Ananias and Sapphira, I can imagine in their own thoughts, they think, man, what we're doing is not really wrong. After all, we're giving to the church. I mean, even if we want a little recognition for it, even if we want to gain a little status and a little respect, but God's looking on and he's judging their heart, and he's judging their motives. And so the lie to the apostles and the church was so very serious because it was really a lie to God himself. Now we know from the first four chapters of Acts that God is, is doing a great work in his church, amen? He's moving through the church. The, the movement is growing, it's, it's gaining popularity. This was a, a very special time for the church There was great grace that was upon the church in this season, but Jesus had warned the disciples a while back. He said, it's it's not always going to be like that. Jesus shares a parable, and it's in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to turn there. Matthew 13, in verse 24, he teaches this, that there would be weeds that would be sown among the wheat. Verse 24, it says this, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and, and gather them? But he said, no, in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers this, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into the barn. What a powerful parable that is. And, and what we see here in Acts chapter five, is the first effort of the enemy to sow weeds into the weed. Think about it. Satan had tried to use the religious leaders to destroy the church, but through their threats, the church only got stronger, right? They only only grew stronger and and grew in number, and so if he can't hurt the church from without, he says, you know what? I'm going to attack the church from within. And this was a, a precarious moment for the church. Again, it was growing, but it was still small enough. It was still knew enough that there was a real danger that it could be stopped if the Sanhedrin took out the leaders of the church. But the most dangerous problem, fill this in if you're on the note sheet, was not external, but internal. The, the, the greatest danger, the, the most dangerous problem was not external, but internal. You see, if the church at the start became hypocritical, it would lose its spiritual power. Again, the church is made up of converts who came for the Feast of Pentecost and now they receive the Lord, they, they, their faith is in Christ, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and many of them are eventually, once they receive the apostles' teaching, they're going to return to their homelands and they're going to take the gospel with them. How amazing is this? It's almost like somebody planned it all out, right? And, and so they, they need to be strong. They need to be pure in their doctrines and their convictions in order to be able to start churches wherever they go, or else the message would die. You see, only a pure church could turn the world upside down. Only a pure church could, in holiness, wield God's power. And, and the story shows us clearly that God desires quality more than quantity. I, I believe it's the same today. God is more interested in your purity than he is in your prospects for the future. Hear that today. He's more interested in your purity than he is in your prospects for the future. God is more interested in your motives than what you actually do. Because you can do all the right things. You can come to church, you can can serve, you can even have a position in the church, you can give, you can attend. But if your motives are wrong, it's not pleasing to God. God desires, hear me, God desires a pure church. You know, it only takes like two or three drops of chlorine to purify a gallon of water. Why? Because that chlorine is so pure. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says this, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. In other words, if you find a fly in expensive perfume, it ruins it. In Leviticus, there's this verse that says, if a dead lizard is found in an earthen jar, that jar is defiled and it must be broken. And here's what I see happening even through uh, these past two years in in the church, right? As many churches close their doors, I, I truly believe that God would rather have a small church that is pure than a big church that doesn't represent him. He would rather have a small church that is pure than a big church that doesn't represent him. It's so a pastor I've connected with in New York City. His name is David Englehart. He, he, he says this, and it resonated with me the first time I heard him say it. He said, we don't need bigger churches. We need bigger Christians. Right? We don't need bigger churches. We need bigger Christians. And that's why we as a, a church are, are, are focused so focused as a church on making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Our desire, my desire, is not to have a house full of mediocre Christians, but rather that we would be a family of believers that is in strong pursuit of being like Christ, right? (laughs) That, That we're going after him together, and he's changing us. At the same time, I know this, this is God's church, and he's in charge, and I know that the more that God manifests himself, the more purity he requires of those that he uses, my wife is away this week. My wife and daughter are away visiting family uh, down in Texas this week, and so it's just my younger son and me, and I gotta say, and she's probably watching this, we don't keep things quite as clean when she's away. I'll just be honest. To me, it's like you're gonna clean every minute. That's just a wait, that's like wait three days, and then we'll clean up. Okay, Wednesday night, we're gonna be on a cleaning frenzy, right? But, but here's what I found out. If you, if you keep the lights down, the place doesn't look so, so dirty. Just, just keep the lights out, right? but the brighter the light, the more visible the dirt is on the floor. As God begins to turn on the light in our lives, all right? Well, suddenly we see impurities that we've never seen before. As God shines his light on the church, as his presence shines on this place, he's going to bring out the impurities and he's going to expose things in order to change us and make us more like him. I heard a story of a, a rabbi who was teaching his students a lesson. He was preparing them for death and talking about repentance. And one of the students asked him, he said, he said, Rabbi, when should a man repent? And the rabbi answered, he said, well, you should always repent a day before your death. The students were a little confused, like how can somebody know the day of their death, they asked. And he responded, he cannot. And since he might die tomorrow, it's all the more necessary to repent today. What is repentance? Repentance simply means turning around. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray like this. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Understand, I was sharing about this on Tuesday night at our prayer gathering, that that word forgive follows the word give. And I encourage you in the Lord's Prayer to highlight that word and because it's so important because it links the request for daily bread with the request for daily forgiveness. In the same way that we think of our need for food, we ought to think of our need for forgiveness day by day by day. Many of you, you're very aware of your need for daily bread. You're like, Pastor, I'm hungry, come on, let's go. But we're utterly unaware at times of our need for daily forgiveness. You see, if we're sincere and honest when we pray forgive us our sins, then we are openly admitting that there are things in our lives that we've done wrong, right? And many wrongly think, man, well, because I'm saved, I don't need to ask for forgiveness or I don't need to confess anymore. This, of course, is not true. We need to repent daily, right? And here's the good thing, he forgives us, he cleanses us, he makes us new. And here's the reality, repentance always leads to revival. It's true in the church, but it's true in your own life as well. Repentance always leads to revival. Now, the early church was really the seat of revival. If ever there was revival, it was in the early church. 3,000 are saved at the day of Pentecost. By, by chapter 5, you could say there's probably about 25,000 believers, okay? This thing is growing, it's, it, the church is exploding. In Acts chapter 4, they, they pray in such a way that the place in which they're praying is literally shaken. And all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit. And and so we see miracles and and signs and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But here, in the midst of all this, we see a couple who are living right in the middle of Holy Ghost revival, but they're unaffected by it. They're they're living their life as if God wasn't there. They had no sense of God's presence in their life. They must have thought, oh, God's God's not going to know, or he just doesn't care. How frightening Ananias and Sapphira didn't realize what they had. They they took revival. They took the presence of God for granted. Can I just say it is a terribly dangerous thing to linger around the fringes of revival without stepping into it? Because if you're only standing back and you're looking at what God is doing in the lives of others, but you're not entering into it, it actually breeds a numbness. It actually breeds a numbness to what God is doing. It actually can breed an indifference in your life. In verse 9, Peter says to Sapphira, how is it, tell me, please, that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. You've agreed together to test the Holy Spirit. They were testing God to see, man, how much can we get away with, right? But they went too far. And, And their hypocrisy was outright. It was blatant. In essence, hypocrisy refers to the act of claiming to believe something but acting in a different manner. The word is derived from the, the Greek word actually for actor. Literally, it is one who wears a mask. One who wears a mask. In other words, somebody who pretends to be what they're not. And the Bible clearly calls hypocrisy a sin. Their, their hypocrisy was, was blatant, but understand, there's another, I, I think, a more subtle form of hypocrisy that often permeates the church. It's this I'm okay, you're okay syndrome. When we come to church, sometimes we we come to church with a mask of spirituality, and yet we're hurting inside. And and we're afraid to admit, man, my my marriage is struggling, or my kids are out of control, there's things going on in my life that that are overwhelming, and so we say, you know what, I'm doing good, praise God, everything's good, right? But every time we do that, I wanna tell you we die a little inside, Ananias and Sapphira may have dropped dead on the spot, but many Christians are dying by degrees. And so God wants his church to be authentic. God wants his church to be transparent. John says this, confess your sins one to another, right? We need to be willing to share with one another. We need to be willing to open our lives and have others encourage us and pray for us, right? But at the same time, on the other end of it, we also need to be unshockable so that people can confess to us, right? If somebody confesses sin to you, you're like, oh my gosh, right? You think they're ever gonna come to you again, right? We need to be unshockable and say, yes, I, I, I know God's at work in the lives of so many people in this place, right? And we're trusting him in that way. Because I can tell you with absolute certainty that there are marriages on the rocks in this room. I just know it. Number of people, in the, I know that. I know there are those of you in this room that are, are struggling with addictions. Maybe you have uh, struggling with, with abuse. There are things here that we can't deny, but they're here. Are we willing to be open and honest about those areas, or are we just going to put on a mask and play a part? In Psalm 139, verse 1, David says, "Oh Lord, you've searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit down, and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all of my ways. He concludes the psalm. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, the death of Ananias and Sapphira, it's shocking, isn't it, as you read it? But it's also a stark reminder that God demands integrity and authenticity in his church. I want you to see the results of this judgment in the life of the church. The first one is this, it's fear and awe. Fear and awe comes upon the church. Look at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And again in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. What kind of fear is this? Well, it's a recognition that God is holy and he's righteous and he's just. It's a recognition that, man, sin in my life is an awful offense against God and that thing deserves punishment. Now, we don't talk a lot about that in society, right, or in the church, but I, I think we should. And, and because we don't talk about it in the church, even, even the church has, has bred this view of God that he's just some pushover, who's just gonna look the other way when you sin. It's no, it's no big deal, but that's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. He's an awesome God whose holiness is impossible even to look at. And, and so fear is, is an appropriate motivation if fear reflects reality. I heard about a museum that, that put out all these do not touch signs. They were trying to keep people from touching the art and, and the furniture and the artifacts, but even with the do not touch signs, people kept touching things. And so one employee thought, you know what, I'm gonna make another sign, and he put up signs that read, caution, wash hands after touching. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden, things change overnight. I wonder in our lives, what if every time we sinned instantly was played out before us a scene of hell? What if what was played out before us every time we fell short was a, a picture of Christ suffering on the cross? I, I think if that was the case, we would recognize more greatly the holiness of God and the ugliness of our sins. But there's another result that comes about from the death of Ananias and Sapphira. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. It says this, none of the rest joined them, but the people held them in high esteem. It's kind of a strange statement, isn't it? It seems almost self-contradictory, right? They were so highly regarded that no one dared join them. (laughs) But look at the next verse, because it sounds like an even greater contradiction. It says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The writer's saying here, nobody would join them, but they kept growing, right? They're growing more than ever. Again, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, probably 25,000 at this point, but more and more and more, the church is exploding, right? And, and so what's going on here? I, I believe because of what took place that there was a, a, uh, an understanding and, and there was a refined church and there was a, a new recognition of the cost of discipleship. There was a recognition, man, if you join this group, It's going to cost you something. It it could cost you your life. (laughs) This is serious. And they're saying, man, timid souls need not apply. Like if you're looking for a a comfy, cushy existence, you need not apply. If you're looking for a social club, keep on looking, keep on going, right? Those who just want to make a lot of money, buy a nice house, invest in the future, retire early, sit back, eat, drink, and Be merry. You need not bother showing up. You see, the death of Ananias and Sapphira reminded everyone in the church that this was war. There was a spiritual war that was taking place, and it might just cost you everything. When Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead in front of the church, suddenly there was a new recognition. Man, we're playing for keeps. This isn't a game, and there's no place for half-hearted commitment. The swift judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, it kept the half-hearted, it kept the uncommitted from joining the Christians. More importantly, there was no place for deception in the church. There was no place for greed or self-centeredness in the church. The church realized that they were in this for keeps. And yet, despite the recognition of the cost of discipleship, there was extraordinary growth. Look at verse 14 again. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. See, here's what I believe happened. People rose to the spiritual challenge. There was incredible spiritual and numerical growth in the church. And here's the question you have to ask yourself. If you were there, would you have dared to join? Would you stand with me this morning as we prepare to close? If you were there in the early church and you saw what took place with your own eyes or, or, you, or you heard the story, would you have dared to join this group of believers? Don't be so quick to say yes. Think about it seriously because you just saw two people drop dead on the spot. If you were there, would you have dared to join? Whatever your decision then, this decision's the same today because God never changes and I believe this for us as a church, if we want to experience growth, if we want to experience real real growth, and I'm not just talking about large numbers, I'm talking about authentic spirituality, I'm talking about real discipleship, then we have to recognize the awesome holiness of God. We have to realize that the incredibly destructive effects of, of sin in our lives, we have to recognize the extraordinary cost of discipleship with heads bowed around the room, I want you to ask yourself these questions seriously today. It's a time between you and the Lord right now. Don't miss this time. I want you to think seriously. Do you have any areas of hypocrisy in your life? Do you have any areas of sin that, man, maybe you've written off before today. You thought, it's not a big deal. God will just overlook that. Because here's, here's what I know from talking with many of you, that you have a desire to be more greatly used by God. You have this desire, I want to be used by him, but here's what it will require. It will require a greater consecration. It will require your life being set apart only to God. Today, in, not just in this church, but in every church, there are weeds among the wheat, and God allows it to be so. But even if you're here today and you recognize your weed, I want to say there's hope. God can make anything new. He can make anyone new. Amen? Transformation is possible. Every follower of Jesus is transformed because each of us, by nature, we were objects of wrath. But when we came to Jesus, we threw ourselves upon the mercy of God. And that's exactly what our passage today invites us to do. Listen, you may escape judgment like Ananias and Sapphira in this life but all of us are gonna one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And and in that moment, not one of us is gonna get away with lying to the Holy Spirit. But the good news is if you are truly in Christ, if you've trusted what he has done for you, you will be found blameless for our sake, God made Jesus, he he, he made Jesus to be sin even though he knew no sin of his own in order that we might become the righteousness of Christ. If you haven't trusted Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in him, will you trust him today? Scripture says this, without holiness, no man shall see God. (laughs) And we can't be holy on our own, but because of what Christ has done, by faith in the finished work of the cross, you can be made holy. I would encourage you this morning, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, surrender your life to him. Repent of sin. What does that mean? It means to, it means to turn around. It means you're going this way on the Palisade. you get off the exit, you take the overpass, and you, you go the other way, right? Some of you today, that's what it takes. Father, forgive me. I repent. I want to turn from that. I place my faith in you today as my Lord and Savior. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off till tomorrow. You can receive that today. I wonder with heads bowed around the room, if there's anyone in this place this morning that would say, I need to repent of sin. I need to turn to Jesus. Just by an upraised hand this morning, I just want to pray for you, pray with you. Praise God. Praise God. I would just say, Pastor, would you pray with me? I, I want to receive that gift of salvation this morning. Well, let's pray together, and and I'm going to ask you to repeat after me, and it's not the words that we say, but again, it's the posture of your heart. God knows the motives of your heart today, and so just just pray this prayer with me, but if you're praying it, especially for the first time, I encourage you, mean it, (laughs) mean it. Dear Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. I've fallen short. But today I throw myself on your mercy. I ask that you would forgive me. Holy Spirit, come in and change me. Make me new. Use me for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time today, that's, that's all it takes to step into the kingdom of God. But then God wants to begin to change your life. Again, that word repent, it means to, to turn around. And some of you, you're here this morning and you've been in the, in the church for some time, but there's some things that you've let go. And, and maybe today the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on something and he's saying, would you just stop playing church today? Would you repent? Let, let what others see on the outside be, be true on the inside. Some of you today, maybe you're saying, I don't know, Pastor, I haven't heard the, the voice of the Lord in a really long time. Maybe it's because you haven't been honest with him. Maybe it's because you haven't prayed and, and cried out. And so I want to invite you as we close today, these altars are open. It's just a place to come and to, to meet with God. If you would pray a prayer like David prayed, Lord, search me. This is a good place to pray at the altar. I'm going to Even as you come, I would invite any deacons and elders that are in the room. We would just love to come and lay a hand on you and pray for you. Pray today that the Holy Spirit's power on your life would continue to transform you and make you who God wants you to be. But I really believe this today. We're at a a place as a church where God wants to do more, but he needs to refine us. (laughs) He needs to constantly refine us and change us and make us more like Him. And so if that's your desire this morning, the altars are open, just come as as we worship. Find a place, get alone with the Lord. We would just love to lay a hand on you and pray for you. Believe with God for continued change and transformation. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.